these words nearing the end of the creation account in Genesis. We want to hear especially what is said in this passage about men and women being made in the image of God. Genesis 1, verses 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate Word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of all of us assembled here to receive your holy gospel and to write on our hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin our time in God's Word this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, I want to begin with the question that I often begin with when we come to this time in our worship service, and that is the question of why. Why are you here? Why are we here gathered for the sermon? Why are we here to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why are we gathered together at all as a church on the Lord's Day? We live in a time that I am convinced is nothing new or unique, but that many today feel perhaps is, where the church seems particularly confused by the why question. What is our place in the world? How are we supposed to be engaging the culture around us? Especially when we see things that are happening that are bad, wicked, sinful, rebellion against God's word and the way of life of following Jesus. This question often arises among the church. Who are we? What is our role? How do we connect with the world? Who are we supposed to be? And especially if you care about the, the world around us, if you care about your community, if you care about bad things that are happening and wanting the world to be better, the question is, what does this have to do with any of that? What does the things we are doing and talking about here have to do with the world? I want to remind you of an image, an illustration that was somewhere near the end of our sermon last Sunday. And it's the image from... Uh, the liturgical theologian J.J. von Allman that I've been reading a lot of lately, really enjoying and appreciating. And one of the ways he relates what happens in worship to what we do in the world is the image of a heartbeat. That there is the diastole and the systole function of the heart. The diastole where the muscles relax and the blood returns to the heart. The systole where it is pushed out into the world. And what happens when the blood is in the heart is that it is being oxygenated. The blood from the lungs, the blood from the body is mixing together, and then that oxygenated blood is pushed back out into the body. That rhythm is a helpful image for our rhythm through the week. We gather here as the church to do things that happen at no other time, that can happen at no other time, to do things that are truly unique and separate and different from anything the world has to offer, to talk about things the world does not talk about. But we do that not to reject the world, but so that we might be formed by it and then sent into the world. That we are changed, we are made different by what we do here as the church. And the key to this, and the part that it is so easy to miss, to forget, to neglect is that the thing we do here as the church 
is otherworldly. It is heavenly. It is the kingdom of God breaking into the world. That we are going to be talking about things that sound irrelevant. And that is the whole point. The way we have relevance, the way the church matters in the world, is being, by concerned, being concerned with things that seem to not matter, that seem to be disconnected from the world. So you've, you've heard the accusation many times through the history of the church, something like this, you Christians are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You're talking about all of this spiritual stuff floating up in the air somewhere, disconnected from the world. What's the point? You guys should be doing something to actually help people. What we want to say is that the only way to be any earthly good is to be heavenly minded. And we say that against those who reject the heavenly mindedness, right? Who want to say, let's just talk about politics and social gospel and ways we can make the world better. But we also say that against those who want to be heavenly minded instead of caring about the world. There are plenty who make that error as well, who want to simply be doing churchy things as a way of escaping, fleeing the world. We want to resist both of those errors and say we gather here as the church, do what we do uniquely as the church because we care about the world and that it is here that we are formed truly to be a light, to be different, to be God's people, to be a blessing in the community. I am persuaded that this is exactly what God's word is doing in Ephesians chapter 4. We are in a section of Ephesians that it is very tempting to hear as just talking about private, individual, how I can go to heaven one day. To be just talking about private, individual, how I can sin less and be less naughty. And this portion of Ephesians so easily is boiled down, summarized in that way. So what I want to do as we go through this passage is try to highlight for us the ways in which this text is actually doing far more. It is talking about all of reality. It is talking about all that matters in the world, all that is wrong that God is setting right. It is talking about all that is broken in your life that God is setting right. And it is talking about how we as the church are to relate to a world that is so often confusing, frightening, that is so often so tempting us to despair and fear. Ephesians chapter 4 is equipping us with what we need to be the church faithfully. We're going to see this in three steps. And my goal here is that each of these points will sound like, wow, the most uh, simple, boiled down, just sort of individual salvation way of talking, but in a way that's going to be inflected, changed, made bigger by how the Apostle Paul talks about it. First, the problem of sin. Second, the power of the gospel. And third, the life of the church. First, the problem of sin, and you might notice that's the outline of our catechism. Sin, salvation, service. But we want to learn from how this passage in particular talks about it. First, the problem of sin. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner... Excuse me, that's not the right verse. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, reading the wrong verse was a helpful mistake. Notice how Paul is contrasting two ways of walking. 
In verse 1, he had given us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In verse 17, now he's contrasting that with the rebellious way of walking. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now he's going to be then describing our way of life as being different than the world. But there's already some rich theology here when he says the word Gentiles. Now this is actually quite strange. Gentile meant those who were not Jewish, those who were not part of Israel. There was the Israelites and there were the Gentiles. Well, we happen to know that Paul is writing to a Gentile church. And now he is saying that it is the people who are not in the church who are the Gentiles, which means those who do belong to Christ are the true Israel. In that one word use, Paul is embedding all of this theology of how Old and New Testament relate together. That God always planned the nations would be included in Israel and that that body, the church, Jew and Gentile together, just would be the true Israel of God. And so he uses the word Gentiles to speak of those who are outside the church. What is he saying they should do? Not to walk the way the Gentiles do, the way the world does. And notice, this does initially at least have the tone of something like this. Don't live like people out there. You walk differently. Don't walk the way they walk out there. And there is that tone, though it's going to be more complicated than that. He then, in the next several verses, through verse 19, so really just 18 and 19 together, he describes that way of walking that the church is called to not do. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul describes the life of the world outside the church as being simply a giving over to sin. Notice the language of being greedy to, for, for every kind. A, a sort of having uh, defined oneself by that way of life. He is not specific about what the sins are. He says this in a way that applies to every time and place that the church is to be aware of what it looks like to give oneself over to sinful rebellion. And so we ought to right away think of all manner of sinful chaos that is around us in our culture right now and be reminded that that experience of the church, being aware of being surrounded by chaotic sinfulness, is not new. This is how Paul wrote to the early church. It is how God's word speaks to us today. And we are to be aware of the temptation, the, the danger of that giving oneself over to a life of sin. Notice in particular something interesting about how the apostle speaks of it. He speaks of it as being in many ways intellectual, thinking, mind, foolishness. A kind of foolishness of how they think about the world. Verse 17, in the futility of their minds. But he's saying for the world apart from Christ... There's a kind of wrong way of thinking about life, of what life even is, and it's a way of thinking about life that is futile. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't work. It might remind you of the language of Proverbs. And indeed, when he uses the word walk, that also ought to remind us of Proverbs. 
of how the Old Testament scriptures speak so clearly there's a way of life in the world that works with the grain of reality, and there is a way of living that is contrary to reality. And that way of living is not just wrong because God says don't do that. It's wrong because it doesn't work. It is foolish. It is destructive. Notice that tone in what Paul says here. They are darkened in their understanding. That their ability to understand what is good has been darkened. Now, that's, on the one hand, it sounds like just sort of like attacking the world. But notice the fearfulness of that state. We often like to think of those people out there as knowing the right thing to do and just gleefully doing the wrong thing anyway. Now, there is truth in that, but notice how Paul's tone is that there comes a time, though, where their, their, their understanding is darkened. They're, 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 they can't even figure out what the right path is. They've gone so far down the wrong path, they can't even see their way back to the right path. I want you to notice is there's a kind of sympathy in that way of speaking, and I think that's an important part of what is going on here in this passage. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Again, ignorance, hardness, their heart is no longer sensitive to the good, to the bad, to be able to tell the difference. And then verse 19, you have the same idea. They have become callous. You know, if, if you have a callus, what is one of the main consequences of it? Well, it's, you, that's one that can't feel as well. The nerves don't work as well. It's not as sensitive. And so Paul is saying they've arrived at a point, again, the same idea of hardness of heart, where there, there's a lack of being sensitive to what is good and what is not. How did they get there? Having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, Paul is warning about this danger of giving yourself over to a way of life. And that in the giving yourself over to it, there is a loss of sensitivity, awareness, the ability to even discern what is right and wrong. Brothers and sisters, there is a deep warning for us here as the church, as Christians. Think, for example, the language of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is destruction. Okay, so the phenomenon of you think one thing is right, it's good, but you're being foolish about that, it leads to destruction. This text is saying something perhaps even more frightening. That there is a time when you can tell what is wrong. You know it's wrong. But if you keep flirting with it, if you keep messing with it, if you keep thinking maybe it's a little bit okay, there will come a time where you will lose your ability to tell it's wrong where you will grow calloused, you will grow insensitive to it. There is a kind of giving yourself over to it. And that state of being is fearful, frightening. This is why the scriptures are full of the warnings to not flirt with sin. The book of James speaks this way, of how sin grows. It doesn't stay put, that you can't create a spot for it and say, well, this much sin is okay, I'm going to put it here and that's all right. It will always seek to take over. And the warning embedded within how Paul speaks here is that for a time, you can tell it's bad. And you know it's bad, you're flirting with it anyway. The danger is of growing callous, growing insensitive, not being able to tell the difference. And brothers and sisters, this is a warning regarding intellectual foolishness. Flirting with ideas that are rebellious, ways of thinking about life. 
Does this not speak to our cultural time and place where we can bring in pipelines of all sorts of ways of thinking about life, all sorts of ways of thinking about culture, and the scriptures warn, flirt with that long enough and it will no longer seem as bad as it once did. That is the language here of callousness, of hardness of heart, of giving oneself over. I'm wondering if anyone objects to this way of speaking of this text, because isn't Paul talking about Gentiles out there? Isn't he saying, this is what those bad guys out there are doing? That they're the ones who have done that? Why are you, why are you saying it as a warning to us? Brothers and sisters, the biggest error we can make in a text like this is to make it about church good, people out there bad. What does Paul go on to say? He is going to say, in verse 22, put off your old self. He is saying the old self is something in which you still somewhat participate in. You will not be freed from the struggle against sin until the new creation. And so what he is describing about the way that is out there in one sense is a way that we are called to put off. What does he say? But He says that it belongs to your former manner of life. That this is something that used to identify you and that in some sense you have to continue to be putting off. So, when the Apostle Paul talks about those who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, hardness of heart, giving them over to sensuality, do not let yourself pick whatever your favorite culture war topic is and be thinking, yeah, those people are bad. That is not what this is saying. Perhaps you picked a culture war topic, guessing about 70% of you did, that involves the worship of the self and self-definition, self-actualization. I can be whoever I want to be. There is nothing outside of me that defines who I am. And whatever bizarre, chaotic, contrary to reality ways we see in our cultural moment, that is being lived out. A bunch of us thought of that. I know we did. Every time we fail to live with each other as the church as we should, to give, to sacrifice, to forgive, to bear with one another, we are following the cult of the worship of the self. When we see that sin go to an extreme out there, don't pat yourself on the back and pride yourself on being different. We say, we must all be putting off the old self. We must all be aware of the ways that we are tempted to worship the self and to give ourselves over and to recognize that at every moment in our life together as the church, seeking to be the church faithfully, we are up against the very same sin and rebellion. Now, to be sure, what is Paul saying? He's saying there's an out there expression of it that illustrates just how bad it can be. But what is his point? You need to be putting that off. Put off the old self and to seek then this new way that he is showing us in Christ. The problem of sin. He says all of this, secondly, for the sake of then proclaiming the power of the gospel. So he he, he describes just what that chaos of being given over to sin can look like. He then, he says it in a way that means we're supposed to be putting it off, but then he declares a contrast. Verse 20 But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He contrasts that with the gospel. 
And now he then says what that is. What is this good news? What is it that we have learned in Christ? What is it the truth that is in Christ? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Do you see, when he describes the life of the Gentiles, it's not people out there versus people in here. We must not speak, think, feel that way. When he says that, it's about old self, new self. He's saying there is a self, there is a way of being human that leads to destruction, and there is a way of being human that is good, given to us by Christ, and that our calling as the church is to be those who are putting off the old self and putting on the new. And this is a lifelong process something we are always to be about. There is. Now, okay, so look, we're already sensing it. When, 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 when sin is being revealed by God's word, we're sensing there is conviction in it. We're sensing there is a way we are to live that we are challenged by, and there can be a temptation to lose the gospelness of what is being said. And so we must be very careful to hear this as the Apostle Paul announcing good news. All right? We, this is always so hard to balance. I've told you that a million times, I know. Trying to balance, we want to be fully challenged by God's word, but in a way that's very clear about the gospel character of what is being said. It's right here. To put on the new self, and you're thinking, oh, that's something I have to do, I have to get better, I need to keep getting better, I need to work harder. Well, it, it does involve that, but listen. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the new self? It is nothing less than a new creation. It is something God is making, created after the likeness of God. And when Paul says that, he is purposefully, knowingly, explicitly alluding to Genesis chapter 1, where we were made to be in God's image. And what sin did is it gave us a path of life that is destructive, that distorts that, that hides it, that twists it, that runs away from it. And what God is doing in Christ is he is restoring that true image of God. He's restoring humanity to what it is meant to be. Colossians 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Paul, with that word, is locating you personally in this great big story humanity made to be in God's image, sin twisting and distorting that, our Lord Jesus Christ as the true image of God, perfect, and then we in Christ being given the life of that true humanity. God is creating a new humanity and you get to be part of it. When you've heard the language of put off the old self, put on the new, I know that some of you, very wisely perhaps, had very specific struggles come to mind for you. Very specific temptations, things in your life that are broken. You must hear what God's word is saying here as the announcement of something God is doing. That none of that brokenness defines you. None of that sin twistedness makes you who you are that none of it is ultimately in charge, and that God in Christ is making us new as we look to Christ by faith. If you're looking to yourself and you're tempted by ways in which you feel like maybe you have given yourself over to some sort of path that is destructive, the solution is not to look at yourself more. It is then to look to Christ. 
trust him, rest in him, and then the life of following Jesus flows from that. This must challenge us, but it must challenge us, first of all, to look to Christ by faith. In fact, in this way of speaking, the Apostle Paul is saying of old self, new self, renewed after the image of God, is the logic of mission. Because he's talking about a broken humanity and a new humanity in Christ. This is why it cannot be church versus world, us versus them, inside versus outside. We are part of that humanity that is broken. We have heard the good news of that humanity being made new in Christ. And what we are rescued from is something we share with those around us. And the gospel we have received is that which is needed by those around us. And so the way the Apostle Paul describes this actually orients us to the world as being eager to have others share in that good news. My worry is that when we have trouble having that disposition to the world... It's because we have not received that grace for ourselves. And so when you you hear me as a pastor trying to press on having that gospel orientation to the world, one of the reasons for it is I want you to be receiving that grace, to be resting in that grace of what God is doing for you in Christ. And then as you receive that, that is what we are then eager to show, to share with those around us. Notice very clearly how this does, however, involve our doing. Thirdly, the life of the church. This involves our doing, our acting. Yes, it's new creation. That is from outside of us. That is something God does. It does not depend upon you. It's not something you could do on your own. God does it. But when he does it, God never treats his creatures as robots. As Reformed confessions say, as stocks and blocks, as before robots existed, they would have said robots if they existed. God never treats us in that way. That he, tr- he works in us in a way that uses our wills, use, re- re- renews our desires, renews the orientation of our hearts. So that he says, what you have learned is that you are being renewed, uh, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That one of the things God is doing by his spirit is renewing our minds to think wisely. Remember earlier we said Paul spoke of sin as being intellectual foolishness. It's not the only thing it is, but it's his emphasis here. Part of being made new in Christ is to think more wisely about how life works. So if you've been part of this congregation for some time, what you need to do there, what all of us need to do, but it's easier if you've been here, is import the entire book of Proverbs and say... We are not just to say, okay, don't do bad things because God says they're bad, but to be wise about why the good truly is good, to be wise about why the bad truly is destructive, and to seek to grow in that wisdom about those things. Interestingly, it is at this point in the passage where I think we are perhaps most tempted to veer in a very individual, privatized Christian life direction. Because what does Paul then go on to do? If you wanted to summarize it, Verse 25, don't lie. Verse 26, be careful of anger. Verse 28, don't steal. Verse 29, don't use corrupting talk. You can see how it it starts to sound kind of like, now just, you know, be less naughty than other people. Remember everything we have seen leading up to this. 
Paul is describing the very renewal of the image of God, the creation of a new humanity, and that this is what God is doing in and through the church, is making this new humanity. And if you have that theme in mind as you come into this passage, the image of God language that Paul used, have all of that in mind as you come into this portion, things start to jump out at you. Verse 25, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And what's the reason he gives? For we are members one of another. He talks about the church. He says, here is what the Christian life is. Here is what this renewed life of the image of God is. It is the life of the church. And what is so um, deep, challenging, I think exciting about this verse is if we think, okay, you're going to emphasize the church, then we would say, remember, you are a member of the church. You are a member of the body of Christ. But he says this here even more provocatively. He says, you are a member of each other. You belong to each other. You are connected with each other. And so it's not just there's this thing over there that you are each a member of. It's that we are members one of another. So to be sure, what is the specific exhortation? It is put away falsehood, speak truth. But what is the rationale for that? It is that unity of the church of Jesus Christ. The Christian life requires the church. Time and again, when the scriptures speak of the life of God's people, it speaks of it inescapably, irreducibly as a together life, a shared life. And this is specifically the institutional church, the organized church. How do we know this? Well, because he just said a moment ago, verse 11, that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for this. And so he speaks of that organized life of the church as being where this life is lived. Several more details in the passage highlight this. Verse 29, when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That God has ordered the life of the church such that in our speaking with each other, we're able to give grace. That God is somehow using your togetherness as a means of grace for each other. As a place, as a location in which grace is given. Now, that gives us a sense of responsibility for our relationships together and how we speak. But I also want you to hear that as an announcement of a much bigger thing, that that is the nature of your togetherness, that you are able to give grace in that way. Notice how of the list of sins, there is one in particular that he says has the potential to give opportunity for the devil. Did you catch which one it is? In fact, this ought to be striking to us. There's, in this whole passage, there's one sin referred to as giving opportunity for the devil, even after all the stuff about sensuousness and giving yourselves over to the way of the world. What is that one? Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Well, why anger? Well, there's lots we could say here, but one of the reasons is its ability to tear apart fellowship. It's ability to tear apart relationships and togetherness. And Paul says that's what the devil wants to do. He wants an opportunity to turn God's people against each other. And anger is one of the things that will do that. And then verse 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All right, you're all well aware 
time is ticking, and there's so much more that can be said about this passage. Remember where we began this morning, the question of why we are here. Are you aware of what all is in the world? What is out there? What's all going on? Who are we to be? What are we to be doing as Christians? Notice, Paul is aware of the very same circumstances. He talks about the way of the Gentiles, and he talks about it in a way that resonates with our experience. And then, what does he tell us to do? Be the church. He tells us to be the church faithfully. And he's telling us to do that, not by way of ignoring all the stuff he just said about the world out there, but because that is what the world needs. This new way of being human that God is creating in Christ, we are called to live as the church, not instead of caring about the world, but because we do. I want us to be... (laughs) I say that we're challenged too often. I want us to be challenged by the fact that Paul clearly has in view the chaos of Greek and Roman culture and his exhortation to the church of Jesus Christ says things like this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is Paul's great program for the church living in the midst of a a rebellious culture. Do honest work well and live together as the church. Why are we disappointed by that? Why do we want more? Why is the Christian church always clamoring for more? See, we want the stuff the world has. We want that kind of influence, that kind of, that kind of control with things. Paul says this is the quiet but effective witness of the church of Jesus Christ. You are members one of another. Do honest work with your own hands. What is God doing? He's restoring the life of creation, Genesis 1. And that was a life of doing good work and God's good creation. And he says that is what you are called to do. And he does it then pervaded with promise. He says you are sealed for the day of redemption. There's a warning, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by going the way of the Gentiles. But what's the point? What does the Spirit do? He's sealing you for the day of redemption. That you are to forgive each other. Why? As God forgave you. I hope this is clear this morning. I pray it's clear. But all of it's good news. It's what God is doing. He's forgiven. He's restoring. And then we live that way. And most of all, I love the language back when he was talking about the alienation from God. Verse 18. Alienated from the life of God. Say it positively. You were made for the life of God. And this doesn't just mean the life God gives It doesn't just mean uh, eternal life. It means life in fellowship with God, life with God. And it is that life that God has promised you. Our calling as we receive that promise by faith is to then live faithfully as the church in a way that flows from it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, We give you praise for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news that you have rescued us from the way of life that leads to destruction so that we might know the life of God in fellowship with you accomplished by Christ in the work of the Holy Spirit. We plead with you to help us to rest in those promises and to live in a way that is shaped by them. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.